But also on that day, there was another person who died who was mightier in God's kingdom uh, than John F. Kennedy. His name was uh, Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis. He was known as Jack to his friends. He was born near Belfast, Ireland in 1898, raised as an Anglican. At the age of 10, his world was shaken as his mother died of cancer. And he wanted nothing to do with a God who would be so cruel as to take his mother. And by his early teenage years, he had become an atheist. Jack graduated from Oxford University, where he studied philosophy and English literature. Oxford became his home for the rest of his life. He served the first 30 years of his academic career as a fellow of Magdalen College, Oxford. From there, he went on to the newly created chair of medieval and renaissance English at Cambridge University. While he was at Cambridge, he would go back to Oxford on the weekends. And in 1926, God began to tap on his heart. And he had a conversation with another teaching fellow of Magdalen College. He was surprised to learn that this tough-minded, cynical friend that he had known believed in the Trinity. And the news of that really challenged his atheistic presuppositions. Three years later, God tapped on his heart again with a bus trip he took on a spring day in 1929. While he was riding along, he began to think about the philosophers he had read in his life. And as he began to think, he began to kind of put some of their teachings and and, and mix them. and, and, And he began to actually think he could begin to conceive of a being called God. He didn't know anything about this God, but as he got off the bus, he knew that he had believed something he hadn't before, having been an atheist, that he believed that there was an absolute spirit or a God that existed. Some months later, he began to try to figure out what that would mean, who God would be. And Jack finally had to admit, long story short, that the God of the Bible was God. And for the first time in years, he prayed. The story wasn't done yet. The next step came on a September evening spent with a couple friends, J.R. Tolkien and H.V. Dyson. And as Tolkien and Dyson and Lewis talked, and all three of them were pretty intellectual, they discussed the authenticity and significance of the Christian faith. And Jack became more and more convinced that the events of the Bible had really happened. But it was two years later in 1931 that the real conversion and turning point happened. One afternoon, Jack and his brother rode a motorcycle 40 miles to visit the zoo. And following them by car were three friends and a dog named Mr. Papworth. The Lewis brothers got there first, and they had time to relax, and so they were drinking before their friends arrived. And when the car pulled in, they shared a picnic before they went into the zoo. And dogs weren't allowed into the zoo, so Jack stayed behind to babysit, or dog sit Mr. Papworth. 
And as Jack was relaxing in the park, he was kind of feeling tired from the 40-mile motorcycle ride. But he began to realize, as a thinker, he began to realize that he had come to an important conclusion that he hadn't even realized. So he began to realize what he hadn't realized. He knew that when he had left for the zoo, he did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. But somehow when he arrived, he believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the Lord of the universe. And he can't explain it. But before that 40 mile trip on the motorcycle to the zoo, and sitting there babysitting or dog sitting Mr. Papworth, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And in 1941, of course, he burst onto the scene with some of his writings, the screw tape letters, the classic that explains Christianity to the atheists and skeptics, mere Christianity. And the Chronicles of Narnia, etc. Those are just a few of his writings. And he's considered probably one of the most influential Christian authors of the 20th century. Quite a leap from the atheism of his youth. There's something that's interesting about skeptics and and atheists uh, to me. It is this. That all of us have... Something that we hang our hooks on in faith. You have to have faith. Everybody has faith. Everybody hooks their life to some kind of a hope. Everybody wants to be sure. There's a movie that came out a few years ago, I think it was about eight years ago, and it was called Religious. Religious. It's a combination of two words, religion and ridiculous. It was put out by the atheist and comedian talk show host Bill Maher, who believes that religion is ridiculous, so there's no reason for faith, and it makes fun of, pokes fun at religion. And in the movie, Bill Maher doesn't interview um, the, 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 the theologians of the faith. Instead, he goes to the, to the street and, uh, and, and uh, kind of gets people off the street and, and, and pokes fun at, at what they say they believe. The movie's interesting because at the very end of the movie, Bill Maher has what you and I would call a sermon. <laughs> and at the end, he gets pretty preachy. And he declares his faith in no faith. And so doing, he demonstrates that he too lives by faith in something. It's inescapable. If you are a human being, you search for hope, you search for something that to anchor your life to, you want to know that you know. And Bill Maher, though an atheist, is a man full of hope. Now, it's a false hope, but he's full of hope. His hope is built on this. And I don't know how you describe this as hope, but to him, this is hope. There is no God, and there is no eternity. There is no such thing as this being we call God, and after this life, that's it. You go into the dirt, you fall apart, that's it. Life's over. And because there's no God, and there's no eternity, there's no morality, there's no truth. And his hope is invested in this, that there's nothing, so enjoy yourself. Right? And so he has faith that that concept of the world that he believes in is true. 
And a guy like Bill Maher and others think they're holding something in their hands and they see a diamond in their hands, but if their eyes were open to the glories of Christ and the gospel, they would see that they're holding nothing. But a guy like Bill Maher and others could not get up in the morning, couldn't write his next joke, couldn't do what he does if he didn't have some kind of a hope, even though his is a false hope. It is a deeply intense human thing to do, to find hope. We want to be sure. You have never met an irreligious person in your life. There is no such thing as an irreligious person in your life. Irreligion is a religion. Atheism is a religion. It's a worldview. You have never met a faithless person in your life. Faithlessness is a commitment to faith in something. It's amazing, but it's true. But this morning, I want to ask you this question. What makes the Christian different then? What makes the Christian different? If you believe the words that I just said, that everyone from the, from the uh, uh, most angry atheist to the uh, most uh, committed believer exercises faith in something, what makes the Christian different? And I want to tell you this morning that what makes the Christian different is the object of his faith. He's not different because he exercises faith. He is different because of the object of his faith. Now for years, you've probably heard from philosophers and editorials and magazines or newspapers that have predicted again and again the death of religion or the death of Christianity or the demise of faith. If you watch television or listen to the news or read the newspaper, you're told again and again that faith is dying. We live in a modern age. That religion is on the way out, and there are more and more people who are realizing that and turning to atheism or turning to something else, skepticism or agnosticism, whatever you want to call it. And so you have books that have made a New York Times seller best, uh, uh, best-selling books, like The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. By the way, his brother Peter was an atheist, and he's a believer now. Christopher Hitchens has died now. And there's a man who's given his life to research these claims. His name is Rodney Stark. And he published a book called What Americans Really Believe. And he brings back a poll that was done way back in 1947 that asks a question about belief in God. And of that poll in 1947, about 4% of the people polled said they were atheists. That means 96% of the people that were polled had some kind of a belief in, in God, a God existed. In 2007, so um, uh, 60 years later, Baylor University uh, did a poll as well. And that percentage of atheists, that was only 4% in 1947, ballooned all the way up to 4% in 2007. 
the exact percentage 60 years before. And that means that 96% of people that were polled in 2000 again still think there's something else out there. They have some kind of belief and some kind of being in God. Now, that, those kind of statistics might make you think, well, if that's true, then why, aren't our auditor- why isn't our auditorium full of people? Uh, uh, you would think that a lot of the problems we have uh, in our society wouldn't exist. Which leads us to the question then, okay, what does it mean to actually believe in God? What does it mean? And so this morning, I'd like to direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to see this morning what biblical faith is. Folks, and I also want to throw this out there for you as you um, uh, live in this, in this broken world. That our biblical faith is a legitimate faith. Our biblical faith is not simply just a leap into the dark. Our biblical faith thinks. Our biblical faith considers. Our biblical faith obeys in commitment. Our biblical faith asks this question, is this worth it when it is all said and done? And it obeys in a commitment from love. Christians are not different because they live by faith. Christians are different because of the object of their faith. Everybody lives by faith. It's impossible not to do so. Everybody hooks their anchor onto something. Everybody wants to be sure. Everybody wants to have hope. Everybody lives by some set of convictions, don't they? Somehow, some way. But Christianity is true because of the object of our faith. Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 1 through 3, we looked at last time and saw that God describes, not a definition of faith, but He describes it with some key points here. He describes it as assurance, as certainty, as conviction, as something that cannot be seen but is real. And it is something, in verse 2, for by it the elders attain a good report. For by faith... God uh, rewards His people. If you look at the end of the, the verses, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, the Scripture says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now you might wonder what that means. They didn't receive the promise. And trust me, we'll get there. But I want you to focus on that phrase. That these all, these people that the writer of Hebrews is listing... They received a good report from the Almighty Judge through faith. That tells us something very important, doesn't it? And in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7, he's going to give us three illustrations. And if you can think of this passage here as having panels. And the very first panel we're going to look at is all the people up to the flood that he highlights. After that, he's gonna, the next panel is going to be Abraham and the, and, the, and the patriarchs, the fathers in Israel. And then after that, he's going to continue on. 
and other panels. But this is the very first panel. And he gives us this illustration uh, of Abel. He'll give two others, Enoch and Noah, um, up to the flood here. But first of all, Abel. Now let's look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, God testifying of, of Abel's gifts to God in an offering, and by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. Abel. Abel shows the relationship between faith and worship. Between faith and worship. I don't know if you've ever thought about the relationship between what you worship and faith. But Abel shows that relationship. Let me click to the next slide here. As we work through this chapter, you're going to see that faith is not just an intellectual, a mental assent. Like, yeah, I believe that's true. But every time you're going to read about faith, you're going to see that people did something by faith. That there was an action that followed faith. And so that leads us to this understanding that faith is an active thing. Faith is a commitment. It is part of understanding. Faith is understanding. There is some, 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 some thinking that goes into it. And then there is also some action. Some action. And as we look at these three examples, I want you to understand this most important truth. That God finds pleasure in our active faith. God finds pleasure in our active faith. Sometimes we can picture God in a distorted way and see God as dangling the carrot in front of us and then He jerks it away and says, Ah, you almost got it. But that's not our God who is a gracious Father. Our God takes pleasure in faith. Now what do you take pleasure in? Perhaps you take pleasure in donuts. Or perhaps it's, it's shepherd's pie. That's your, that's your favorite. You, you take pleasure in shepherd's pie. Or perhaps you take pleasure in your gardening. And you enjoy getting in the ground and, and tending the plants. Perhaps you take pleasure in building things. Or perhaps you take pleasure in writing poems. Perhaps your idea of pleasure is a beautiful fall day like today where you are, 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 see the panorama of God's beauty in the leaves and you like to paint. Or you just like to sit out there and enjoy it. Whatever it is that you take pleasure in, you understand that there is a joy, a delight in that. Perhaps it's um, uh, watching your grandchildren play and, and reading your grandchildren. Or perhaps it's uh, 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 time alone with your spouse. Whatever it might be. Perhaps it's a nap. Something you enjoy. Folks, God finds enjoyment. He takes pleasure in His people's active faith. That's pretty significant if you let that that thought hit you between the eyes. And here we have a man, Abel, who, from the Bible story, offered this sacrifice of a lamb to God. 
Now we're not told why he had to offer that sacrifice or how he knew how to do that. God must have passed on that revelation through his parents or maybe uh, in those days spoke directly to, to those people himself, God himself. We don't know. But it was required, apparently, for Abel to offer this sacrifice. His brother Cain does not, uh, 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 is, does not have a sacrifice that is accepted by God. Because apparently it wasn't done in faith. But this man Abel here shows us the relationship between faith and worship. Now think about that. This is, this is, this is years where a, a perfect creation is still fresh in their minds. From what their parents have told them. Adam and Eve, their, uh, Abel's parents, had told them about uh, uh, the, the, the creation, I'm sure, and, 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 and how perfect it was, and then what they did to fall into sin. But then they probably had told them also, the, the glory of redemption in one who would come from, from the line of, of, of Adam. One who would undo what Adam, their father, had done. And the glory of redemption in Adam's promise. One who would crush the head of the serpent, while at the same time, his heel being wounded. Abel, I'm sure, understood at least that much. And so Abel offers worship to an invisible God. In a promise to come. Something that he had not seen. Abel didn't have the experience that his parents had in the perfect garden. Abel was told these things. He was told what God had said. Abel hadn't seen the promise come yet. And Abel offers worship that is acceptable to God. Abel is propelled by a love for God and offering this worship. And I want you to see here that worship was an action, wasn't it? He had to take that lamb. He had to kill that lamb. He had to make that altar and put that lamb on that altar. You see, faith redirects, it reshapes, and it recaptures heart. And, and Abel had a vision of God, that God was worthy of his worship. And Abel offered by faith, not just by ritual, not because, okay, this is what we do. But Abel offers by faith because he loves God. And so wouldn't you think that God would deliver Abel from death, from his own brother Cain? That's kind of what we're programmed to think, isn't it? But that's the glory of faith. Faith looks toward the eternal, not the temporary. And though there was one who hated what his brother did and was jealous, came. God receives Abel's sacrifice. And God, when Abel is killed, takes Abel and he brings him into eternity as the very first human being across the threshold into heaven. The very first martyr. Faith displays itself in act of worship. 
Do you realize that what we do in life and how we think reflects what you and I worship? It really does. What you and I do reflects the worth of what we invest ourselves in. Everything we do reflects what we are worshiping. And we become what we behold. What we set our gaze on. What we set our time and attention on. What is the highest value to us is what we become. And I wonder... What your worship in your life reveals what your faith is in. Have you ever thought about that? That, what am I really trusting in? And how do I, how would I come to that conclusion? How would I discern that? The answer is, what takes up your mental energy What takes up your time, your resources? What just consumes you? For Abel, it was a relationship with God. Where your soul is now and what it is is, um, built on, would it give us good reason to think that your soul is stayed on God and you're walking in faith and obedience? Or would there be more evidence that their hopes in this world, their hope is in their job. Their hope is in their home. All these things are wonderful things, aren't they? Jobs, homes, etc. But that's not where we find our hope, is it? Because those things change. Their hope is in a certain political leader. Their hope is in a certain economy. Their hope is in a certain lifestyle. We're not able. Not able. His faith in God translates into worship. And his worship is is displayed here in the right sacrifice, the right approach to God. Look at the next verse. We're introduced to another character that we know very little about. These two characters, Abel and Enoch, we, we're not told very much. I mean, think about all the information we have about David, about Paul and other characters. These, these seem to be only references in passing. Enoch. This man, Enoch. And verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was translated, or his, he was exchanged, that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. Before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now let me tell you a little bit about Enoch. You only read a few verses about him in Genesis, and then he appears again in Jude chapter 14. But the Bible says in Genesis, he's the seventh generation from Adam. Alright, so seven generations from Adam. This guy Enoch comes onto the scene. And he lives 300 years, probably because the, the, the world was so pristine back in those days. Um, uh, he lives 300 years. And then after his 300 years, <clears throat> the Bible says that he 
had a son. And it's very interesting because the Bible says after those three years, and he had this son, that then Enoch began to walk with God. And implies that perhaps he wasn't those first 300 years. But then he did. And you've got to remember, when you read those genealogies in Genesis, up before the flood... Moses, through the Holy Spirit, is trying to show us that there's death and the world is getting worse and worse. And this is found in Genesis 5, by the way. If you look at Genesis chapter 6, it's like God says, that's enough. And he calls out Noah to build the ark and get to that. And he destroys the world. But Enoch's day was not a nice day. The world had not gotten better and better. It had gotten worse and worse. And Enoch, after those 300 years of who knows how he lived, now he decides, I'm going to live by faith in God. And he lives God's way in a very depraved world. In fact, if you read Jude 14, uh, uh, Jude chapter 1, verse 14, uh, Enoch is quoted as saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints, and he's going to judge the world which is just full of iniquity and ungodliness. So that tells us Enoch understood the day he was living and how wicked it was. But Enoch lives God's way in a very depraved world. He's obedient. Enoch does not live by what is going to make him temporarily happy. But Enoch lives by what gives glory to God and eternal reward. Enoch... Can you imagine having 300 years to live and then say, okay, I'm going to change and live the rest of my life a lot better and the rest of your life being even more than those 300 years? That's, that's, that's hard to comprehend. Um, but Enoch, the Bible says, was translated that he should not see death and was not found. Enoch is the only one listed in those genealogies who it does not say, and he died. It says he walked with God and all of a sudden he wasn't there anymore. God took him straight from this earth to heaven. The only other person I'm aware of that that happened to was Elijah. And verse 5 says that he should not see death and was not found because God translated him. Why? For before his translation, before God took him off this earth, he had this testimony. He obtained this good report. Verse 2, right? He obtained this good report that he pleased God. He pleased God. That he had the pleasure of God in his life. That God found pleasure in his active faith. When all the world was falling apart, he he surrendered his agenda. He reoriented his life around God. And he walked in obedience in God's will and purposes. And by the way, folks, just a side note here. It's never too late. 300 years it was for Enoch, implied. It's never too late to say, I'm going to walk by faith. Perhaps this is your day. But look what verse 6 says. It's like the writer of Hebrews says, on the basis of this guy, he says, Enoch pleased God, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. And now he's going to say, here's how God is pleased. He that cometh to God, this whole book has been about approaching God, right? 
cometh to God, must believe that He is, that He exists, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. This is is pretty profound. It's pretty heavy to think about it. He's telling us these two things that apparently were were fundamental um, uh, truths of, of Enoch's life. That God exists, absolutely. He absolutely exists. Now, maybe there's some people struggling with that in here, I don't know. But probably most of us have come to the conclusion that God exists, absolutely. That He did not come into being, He will never go out of being. He is not becoming, or He's not growing, He's not changing. He says in in Exodus, I am who I am, is what He says. That is His name. He absolutely is. And therefore, God is pleased when this absolute existence, that I am who I am, and there's nothing that's going to change that, God is pleased when we embrace that truth. When He is known and embraced for His absolute existence, He's pleased when that's reflected in our lives. But that's not it. Because behind this, this truth that God is, exists, is that He says... Um, and he must believe that he is that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Behind that truth that God exists is this truth that God rewards. So it tells us something, if you read in between the lines, that our life on this earth matters for an eternity. It echoes in eternity. This little this little tiny line of my life here and this vastness of eternity past, eternity future has some consequences in eternity. Now, if I understand that God exists, and He's also a rewarder, that tells me something else about God. If God can reward, now follow me on this, if God can reward those who diligently seek Him, hear this, that must mean that God is so full, that God is so sufficient, that he overflows like a bubbling fountain. And rather than needing my service, because need is a creature word, Tozer said. None of us are, uh, we're, we're needy because we're creatures. God is creator. He doesn't need anything. Rather than needing our service, he is like a never-ending spring of life and energy and joy and beauty and goodness and power. And so therefore it pleases God when we come to him as a fountain of sustenance and a firmness. He delights in that. When we come to him and say, you are our rewarder, you supply things that I cannot supply to myself. And that must have been behind what Enoch was thinking. Maybe Enoch wouldn't have put it in those terms, but there's some fundamental truths there that drove Enoch for hundreds of years. That's a lot of sunrises and sunsets. I mean, we 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 we, we live. You know, the psalmist says the seventy and uh, three score and ten years, and maybe if God's gracious, eighty years. And, and now in our day, people are living longer and longer, right? How many how many of you like to live hundreds of years? God is a rewarder than the diligently seeking seek Him. This is a phrase, seeking the Lord, that's taken out of the Psalms over and over, isn't it? Taken out of the Psalms. And it refers to those, Peter O'Brien says, it refers to those who rely firmly on God, trust His promises will be fulfilled, 
and find in him the source of their deepest satisfaction. I would say that would probably describe Enoch's life if it was enough of which God says, all right, you just come home with me. And so it tells us the second active faith. It tells us that if Abel was active in his worship, then Enoch was active in his obedience. He walked with God. That's a picture of obedience. Walk with God. Now look at this last guy here, Noah. He's the one we're most familiar with, probably. And verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Now what did God warn Noah that Noah hadn't seen yet, or the world hadn't seen yet? That there was going to come a rain and a flood. All right? Noah hadn't seen rain. God, the Bible says God watered the earth with a dew that day. There's going to be rain, and it's going to be so much rain. He didn't just say, okay, it's going to rain one day, and that's going to be totally new to you, Noah. He says, there's going to be a flood, which means it's going to rain, and it's not going to stop raining. All at once. And he says, Noah, you build this ship, this boat, and you take to every kind of animal, and he, he tells, tells them what to do, and, and, and you, you get your family, you get on that boat. And another place in the New Testament tells us that Noah preached to the world for 120 years, saying this flood's coming. And nobody listened. So by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, move with fear. Fear can be a proper motivation, by the way. The word fear means reverential fear. He saw that God, what you said is true. This warning is true. And I'm going to take it seriously. And he did. Move with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his household, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Here we have a guy who shows us that faith endures. Faith endures. Noah and endurance. Faith and endurance. Active faith endures. Noah put himself under God's word. And he submitted to the warnings, the loving warnings and God's solution. Isn't it wonderful that God warned and he didn't say, and there's nothing you can do. He gave him a solution, didn't he? You know what this means? This means that my mind... My heart, my will, needs to be under God's truth. That's what true faith is. It puts my heart, my mind, and my will, my commitment. Sometimes we we say my mind and we stop there and we think, yeah, I know it's true. But it's being committed to God's promises. Noah was... A man who probably had to conquer his fear of man, didn't he? Noah feared God so much that he didn't fear man. Or he didn't allow fear of man to become an obstacle in his life. How do I know that? Let's imagine the first ten days of building this ark. After telling everybody it's going to happen. A year goes by. Five years, and they got the wood ready. 120 years he's doing this, right? Now what if Noah says, yeah, I believe you, God. This rain's going to come, it's going to flood the world. That's awful. 
That's all he did. Is that faith? Nope. Nope. He builds the ark. He builds that ark. Can you imagine the jeers he heard? He had to be the talk of the neighborhood, to say the least. Probably the talk of the world. I mean, if this was going on for 120 years, this had to be the ongoing joke. Yeah, he's still he's still doing that, right? But he's not fearful of that. He fears the one with whom he has to do. The one with whom he will give an account of. And folks, what do you fear? What do you fear? What do you and I fear? What holds us back? We're obeying God. What fear is holding you back from repenting of a particular sin and finding abundant joy in Christ? I'm going to let the Holy Spirit start naming things in your mind. (laughs) Faith is greater than fear, isn't it? What holds us back from taking the steps of obedience that we know? I mean, it's not like... I'm not talking about things, well, um, maybe I'm supposed to go to the other side of the world and be a missionary to Africa. That might be true. But what about the day-to-day stuff? Or maybe it is that thought. Maybe God's put that on you and you're holding back on that. I don't know. But what is it? Noah by faith endures. He goes on in spite of fear. And the Bible says, when that flood came, Noah's faith in comparison to the faith in the other things that the world had? Now, I don't know what it might have been. Maybe maybe this guy had... He built his faith in his job. And so God's warning that there was a flood going to come. His faith in his job was so anchored. He's like, no, i got to stick this one out here. I'm trying to move up the corporate ladder. Not a bad thing, right? But misdirected. Maybe this particular uh, individual here in that flood era uh, was, was, was building their life on, on finding pleasure in, in all kinds of sexual immorality. And he thought, that's what's going to give me joy. But God said, the flood's coming. And he continued on his way and he faced the waters, didn't he? Maybe it was this guy over here who uh, had built up uh, the reputation among all his friends and they thought he was a certain way and he didn't want them to see who he really was and vulnerable. And that's what led to his drowning death. But Noah and his family, it was we fear God more than anything and we're going to do what he said. That's real faith. We have three examples here. All of us put faith in something, don't we? Why not the truth? Why not the thing that doesn't change? Because we're to be a people whose faith is greater than our fears of what this world might become or what could happen. And in the rock-solid promises of God, this man Noah had faith in God's word and it enabled him to endure active faith through endurance. 
What I want to tell you to close this out here this morning. As I said this morning, what makes Christians different is the object of our faith. Our faith is to be rooted in a Jewish man who's called God. The Son of God. Who one day when Jesus was being baptized and came up out of the water and the Spirit came upon Him, His Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well what pleased. Why was the Father so... Why did He find so much pleasure in His Son? Because His Son's faith was active, wasn't it? Was there anyone who had... Jesus didn't have one speck in His life. Jesus didn't have one speck. I don't don't think you can show me this anywhere. Where Jesus had one speck in His life where He didn't have faith. Even in his struggling that night before his crucifixion in the garden, where he says, Father, take this from me. He says what? Nevertheless, not my will, but mine. And folks, this, this chapter is going to name these people. And then in chapter 12, you know what he's going to say? Look to Jesus. He's the Alpha and Omega of your faith. He is pioneer and He is completer of your faith. Look at Jesus, who for the joy of the cross endured endured it. So folks, this faith is rooted in a Jewish man who is called by God, my son in whom I'm well pleased. And this Jesus took the sin that, 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 that casts us apart from God, which is unbelief. And He took it upon Himself and He thrust it upon the cross upon Himself outside Jerusalem. And you know why He did that? Because He believed God's promises that I will not leave your soul in the grave to suffer corruption. And I will be resurrected. And Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. Nobody else has that. No other faith can say that. No atheist can say that. No skeptic can say that. We have a resurrected Messiah. That's why faith is greater than fear. Not because my faith is so special. But because God takes pleasure when our trust is activated in Himself. Because God takes pleasure in all that He is. Faith is greater than fear because of the object of our faith, Jesus. Let's pray.